Hello and welcome, my name is Mark. My name is also Mark. And welcome to The Marking Show. Just so we're clear, we are both called Mark. That is correct. Join us each week as we understand the principles that make businesses succeed. Each week, we'll lean into a new marketing concept to uncover a new piece of the puzzle. Yeah, we're a couple of marketing guys who are passionate about the craft and always hungry to learn more. So we're really excited to have you along on our learning journey. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about brand, brand synergies. synergies. Woohoo! Woo-hoo. Woo. Um, it's a very collaborative episode today. Yeah, so why don't you actually tell us what you mean by brand synergies, Mark? Yeah, so we're, on this episode, we're going to look into um, brand synergies being either mergers, mergers and acquisitions or partnerships between different brands or businesses. And we're going to look into the different ways that that manifests. Yeah, I'll, I've got a bit of a definition yeah, here. Yeah, take us um, away. So finding synergy between two companies or brands Um, is bringing them together with the intention of achieving a business objective faster than you could do it without a merger acquisition or brand partnership. So, and what I mean by synergy is that by having, putting two and two together, you get a result of five. So it's actually faster. It's a better investment to do that than to just try and go it alone. Yeah, definitely. And it's, um, so it's the different ways in which um, brands are going to come together for, for mutual benefit um, and hopefully making sure that we're getting both sides are getting a much better return on investment by by doing that. Um, and as we'll go through, there are awesome mechanics as to the way that's happened um, in short-term and long-term ways as well. Um, and yeah, we'll look into that in the episode. Yeah, I think it's really important to emphasize that it has to be good for both sides because otherwise it's not a true partnership um, that works for everyone. Yeah, definitely. Um, so within this, we're going to be splitting up um, and uh, defining this as um, pure partnerships. So um, brands um, that have collaborated to uh, secure something shorter term, we'll dive into that a little bit later. But also going to just also touch on um, what it looks like when uh, businesses and brands merge for long term benefits or through mergers and acquisitions. And um, Mark, you had some awesome uh, insights into mergers and ad- acquisitions to start off. Uh, yeah, I think to frame it up first. Uh, Mergers and acquisitions um, have been going on for over 100 years and it's a very exciting part of business. You see them sort of mentioned in a lot of movies and pop culture and, you know, the sort of the corporate takeover, that kind of thing. <laughs> so I wanted to frame up um, just by talking about why this is exciting. And I think for me it's exciting because usually there's a lot of money involved. Um, and I just wanted to share what I found online to be the, the biggest uh, the biggest acquisition that's ever taken place which is Vodafone AirTouch um, buying Manison which is a German internet company and that went for 287 billion US dollars if you adjust for inflation today so super exciting there's a lot on the line um, and people spend a lot of time sort of thinking about this stuff and making sure they're the right alliances to make Um, but I've also got a a point of view from uh, one of my favorite business influencers Simon Sinek um, who talks about mergers he says mergers are like marriages they are bringing together um, two individuals if you wouldn't marry someone for the operational efficiencies they offer in running a household then would you combine two companies with unique cultures and identities for that reason so Mm. what he's saying is that like it's all well and good to think of these partnerships and acquisitions as purely efficiency driven, but really it needs to make sense for the companies and the cultures that they have to come together and work together. Because at the end of the day, you have to take two separate entities and make them actually work together in a cohesive way. 
So um, really cool way to frame it up. But in terms of a little bit of background on mergers and acquisitions um, to start us off, and then we can move into brand partnerships, which I think are, uh, whilst they've existed for a while, are probably the more modern version of, yeah. of, of a merger with, I guess, a little bit less risk involved. It's probably one that we will touch on a lot as marketers as well, right, throughout our careers and probably an easy lever to pull. But mm. um, we have to understand the origins of where they even come from first to, exactly. to pull that lever. Yeah, so so I'll take you through um, some key points of just where they've come from and, and how they've changed over the years. So um, they talk about uh, mergers and acquisitions historically coming in waves. So there's been seven waves since they started. The first wave was uh, about from eight, the 1890s to 1904. And this was really focused on, I guess, building monopolies. So um, you had this merger movement, which was a horizontal merger. So what it was, was you'd find companies that wanted to drive efficiency of um, economies of scale um, by merging with similar companies. So some examples um, is these big US sort of like steel companies, like mm-hmm. the merger of Carnegie Steel, Federal Steel, National Steel, and JP Morgan as well as part of mm-hmm. that to become the United States Steel Corporation. So you can understand yeah. that lots of people were buying steel and there was lots of companies offering steel. And if they came together, they immediately increased their market share and they got efficiencies because maybe they could use the same factories to make the same stuff. The second wave was from about 1919 through to 1930. And I sort of feel like this is much more about building oligopolies (laughs) because you, what you had is that you had these, um, these big companies being merged that were doing all the same thing. And essentially you then had the government coming in saying, this is a bit anti-competitive. It's, there's not many companies competing with you and you guys can start to have a bit too much power. So to stop that happening, um, and to stop sort of getting, I guess, told that they couldn't merge anymore by the government, companies started looking um, upwards and, and going, cool, could we actually buy some of our suppliers or some of our resellers? So you have vertical integration. Uh, and what that means is that the company you're dealing with is sort of owns every part of that process and becomes much more like a oligopoly. It's a little mm. bit scary as well. Um, then from wave three, you go into conglomerates. So this is where you know, you've done your verticals and your horizontals and, and it's not enough and you need to be bigger and bigger. So you start just buying companies in other industries. Mm. So you might be like a, a food and liquor business and then you've gone and bought a um, something completely different, like a steel business. Um, and, and you just in all of these different things, the idea being that if you have all of these companies run by one central location, you'll mm. still get efficiency across all of it and it'll still be best for your business. Um, you move into the 70s and 80s where you get corporate raiders and hostile takeovers. So you start to see individuals who are backed by banks going in and saying, I'm, I'm going to buy a majority stake aggressively in this company. I'm not going to actually do a deal with them. I'm just mm. going to go buy their, um, buy a seat at the table and start doing what I want to do with the company. And those are definitely the most um, Hollywood movie uh, yeah. inspired. Yeah, it feels a bit Gordon Gecko. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that that's probably the more exciting stuff as well. And and you even see that today in a different way where you see um, people who are buying a chair at the table because yeah. they feel like that they could drive the company in a different direction. Um, and then you've got the mega deals. So in the in the 1990s to the 2000s, this is where these big, big mergers and acquisitions started happening, like that Vodafone mm-hmm. example. Um, and it's where they sort of... Be- started to become like a, a whole business practice in itself was mergers and acquisitions. Um, and then from there, and more recently, we've had, I guess, trying to merge for globalization purposes. So mm. if you're an American company, you start to merge with companies in other emerging markets. So you can have, I guess, more of a, a global focus. And then m- more recently, you've got, I guess, 
investing in technology. So you've got like a lot of tech startups who are buying other tech startups mm. who have um, technologies that they want to incorporate into their business because they just see that it's the way of the future, especially in what they call brick um, nations. So um, you look at like Brazil, Russia, India, China. Mm. Um, they're sort of areas that people are focusing on in that area as well. Yeah, definitely. And, and a lot of times in um, the, that style of mergers acquisition as well, like strategically they might be buying, yes, the technology or the smaller firm, um, to learn from them and to actually have access to those features. But sometimes they also could be buying them uh, proactively from a competitive standpoint mm. and seeing that, that while they're small, they can absorb them into the ecosystem and prevent um, them stealing share much further down the line when they grow. Yeah, exactly. I've got a few examples actually of that happening. So um, one of the more recent big ones was Facebook mm. uh, buying Oculus Rift. Mm. So Facebook had a vision for... Um, for uh, what VR. You, yeah, for yeah. VR, uh, and they hadn't developed it themselves, but they saw Oculus Rift mm. as the strongest sort of technology, and, mm. and bought that. Or even with Google buying Waze, which is a competitor to Google Maps, yeah. um, they actually saw that Waze had um, a system of engagement with people using the app, who were like reporting on traffic and things and yeah. driving community, and they wanted that in Google Maps, so they actually bought it, left it as a standalone, where Waze still operates as its mm. own app, but took some of the learnings and technology into their own yeah definitely mm. no super super cool so i think from there and this is where it starts to get interesting is we talk about mergers and acquisitions and i've got some principles on or i guess the reasons why companies do this and some of the efficiencies they get but i think this will blend really well with some of the things we have in the principles for brand partnerships yeah definitely. so the the, the 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 thing that people usually talk about is, is efficiency so you get economies of scale when you bring two companies together um, and you run you know the same product in the same factory or you increase your um, your volume going through the factory and the cost per unit goes down and actually that's one of the least profitable um, outcomes of a merger and acquisition so that's usually why people do it but it's not the the most immediate positive results of doing it the most um, profitable part of a merger or acquisition is actually a financial one, mm. which I found really interesting is, is when you put two companies together, obviously their capital base grows and their asset base mm. grows, which actually allows them to borrow money at a lower interest rate um, and borrow more money as well. So it, what it puts on the table is maybe some more riskier investment options that they wanted to drive with their business that they couldn't afford to do or couldn't stomach it before. Now they can because it's not going to cost them as much in financing costs because we know a lot of these big businesses do use a mixture of, um, of debt and equity to finance yeah. this kind of thing. So that really blew my mind. I'd never yeah. actually thought about that. Mm. Um, but another interesting one I found was the um, motivation of employees. So what they found in studies is that after uh, you have two companies come together mm. the the management uh, especially of the smaller company that gets ingested into the bigger company actually has a, a spike in motivation so they they either feel like the new environment is really exciting and, and that they could drive new things or perhaps as a smaller company they had too much on their plate mm. and now that's been removed and been made more efficient through other work streams and they've got the the time to focus on new ideas so yeah motivation is actually a big um a big result of of mergers yeah, it can definitely be in an electric atmosphere um, in an office if you know two uh, companies from similar uh, have similar cultural values come together. Um, it definitely makes those office uh, uh, espresso conversations <laughs> around the coffee machine um, really exciting. So yeah, it's always yeah. nice to have someone new in the office who's had a different <laughs> experience, but now you're in the same place. Yeah, exactly it. 
I think, yeah, it's awesome. It's um, really cool to learn about the history of um, the M&A and, and why it's so important. And, and oftentimes as marketers, it's something that we won't necessarily control or oftentimes lead, mm. um, but it's something that does affect the marketing that we do. So just being conscious of it is so important um, and really cool to learn from as well. Yeah, totally, and, totally. And yeah, yeah. And, 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 and bleeding into that, I think um, the we know that um, from M&As, from a marketing perspective, the thing that's often fallen out from that is uh, the pure brand partnership as well. So understanding that, you know, M&As are, are strategic uh, long-term partnerships for mutual benefit uh, and, they're off, and they're often uh, an exercise to increase or steal market share. Um, pure partnerships or brand partnerships um, are partnering with brands or businesses from adjacent industries to secure as many wins as possible from um, all the different stakeholders. Mm. Um, so that would, that uh, a golden trifecta for us to think about as marketers and that would be to have a win for the consumer, um, a win for the brand, um, and also a win for the retailer if they're selling the product for the retailer. So mm. the consumer gets a product or a service that they often wouldn't have had access to before because these brands didn't come together. Um, the brands themselves get access to uh, new ways to talking to similar consumers or, or new ways to leverage that, which we'll talk about later on. And the retailers that are selling the product, if it's a physical product, will get a new win from all that because mm. they get a really cool new product to sell as well. Yeah, I, I really like what you say there, that, that difference between it being sort of an adjacent, um, not competing partner makes yeah. a lot of sense. And I think if um, like a way that you can look at it is if you really understand your consumer who currently uses your product or service, if you really understand their life and how they interact with not only your product and service, but other other products and services in their life, that's where you can start to identify what these adjacent sort of categories are that you could dive into. And one of the ones, just to give an example of how this could work is I saw one from um, Under Armour, yeah. the, um, the fitness uh, clothing yep. line, and they actually, uh, merged with a company called my fitness pal oh, yeah yeah so what they understood was that people were interacting with these fitness apps and they were wearing their clothes whilst exercising so they thought why not sort of be a bigger part of our consumers mm -hmm. life um, by partnering with them and then it also becomes i guess an opportunity for a new channel where they could sell their products through mm. the app potentially yeah no definitely and um i think the the cool thing about that is um that's such an awesome long-term partnership which could mm. have started as a small short-term pure partnership mm. um so oftentimes we know that you know um m&a's way while they may not be led from the marketing department um from the you know very top and from the get-go they can start from a cool brand partnership yeah. because you know if we if we define the pure partnership as a short-term thing and if it goes really well it can turn into a long-term structural um collaboration that often ends in, in an m&a <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. exactly. <laughs> awesome. you, yeah. you could be the hero of the company that brought the idea <laughs> that became a merger. Exactly, and and um, as we'll dive into um, in further principles, like the cool thing about the Under Armour and the um, My Fitness Power merger is that yeah, they're both talking to fit people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, they both get to interact with them, and they're not competitive and. Um, they get to talk to fit people in an even more interesting and uh, more frequent way. Yeah, and I mean, you almost change from being purely a clothing brand to a, a lifestyle brand. Yeah, no, definitely. Mm. So I guess in terms of um, going through um, from the partnership or the marketing um, focus perspective, in terms of the different principles we can think about as marketers if we want to 
uh, think about activating a brand partnership mm. and for some of the reasons as to why we might do it. Um, I think the first thing to really be really clear on is um, if we're the ones uh, initiating the partnership is understanding what our core business is mm. um, first and foremost. And core is something that we always talk about on the podcast, but it, we talk about it um, up front a lot because it is so important because having that clear definition um, at the beginning helps identify some of the different areas where you might be able to uh, target um, for, a, for a partnership because from understanding our core business, we can understand what the auxiliary parts of your portfolio, your brand is as well, because um, in order for it to keep it as a partnership, we wanna start leveraging those um, auxiliary parts of the portfolio and not the core business, because that's when it stays as a short-term partnership, mm. rather than if you're combining your two cores of two businesses, then that kind of bleeds into mergers and acquisitions territory. Yeah, I, I think you, you wanna use that auxiliary part of the portfolio and if, if it has any effect on your core, it's just to elevate the core as it is. Yeah. Uh, to sort of to be to have it be seen by potentially a new consumer in a new light. Uh, I think it's really important. And you're right. If you do start merging cores, it becomes it can become a lot bigger very yeah. quickly. I I really like that. Um, you know, understanding your core because I think it leads on nicely to if you've understood your core and what are the parts of your portfolio mm. you might want to start to think about a partnership with, is also understanding uh, your strategic intent um, and making sure that any anything any other brand that you align with has a similar strategic intent. Uh, there was a really great article um, in Marketing Week about uh, brand partnerships that mm. I thought illustrated this really nicely. And it was from 2015 and they were talking about the new Star Wars movie that was coming mm. out at the time. Uh, and how all of these brands sort of jump on this opportunity to, to I guess, slap on the Star Wars logo uh, onto their product, mm. um, often their core product, uh, and, and just take that as an opportunity to try and bank some more sales. And, and really what you get out of that is you get some, some examples which are really great and some examples which just don't work. So one of the ones that didn't really seem to work was there was a nail polish company that just made a line of nail polish which had star wars written on it mm. um so it wasn't really clear what the strategy was whether that nail polish brand was actually trying to move into a new space where they had maybe a more space aged range of colors and options or mm. it was a new consumer it just felt like they were taking their core product and just going you know what we're going to put star wars on there yeah. and and you know it, they had no integration. The execution wasn't great. It wasn't like it was featured in the movie. And I think we can talk about execution in a bit. But then there are some brands where you really see how those strategies align. So you look at film franchises like Star Wars and you understand that the consumer is uh, a young consumer who who is liking these sort of um, fantasy movies. But then there's also some older people who have a little bit of nostalgia around it. And a brand, I think, that leveraged that really well is Lego. Mm. Because Lego does all of the Lego sets with, um, with Star Wars. Um, characters and, and things from that movie but as well as other things like Hogwarts castle sets and all of that and I think they've understood as well that there's a bit of nostalgia with Lego everybody's played it but at the end of the day they're selling the same brick to a new consumer every year of young yeah. people um, new consumers so they have to stay relevant to those new consumers and and what are those new consumers doing they're watching the new Star Wars film yeah um, so it's a great way to sort of go beyond just slapping on a logo and actually having a strategically aligned partnership. And that has become a, a much longer term brand core partnership. Those Star Wars sets are one of their biggest sellers. So 
I think that's a really great way to show how if you have that strategic intent, it can make a whole lot of sense for your business. Yeah, definitely. No, they're, they're really awesome. And I think secretly deep down, I've always wanted to get one of like the really big Millennium Falcon uh, <laughs> Lego yeah. Star Wars sets. It's so cool. And just hole up in a room <laughs> and just play some music and just build it start I'd, to finish. But I think it would be too hard for me. Like they say on the pack that you have to be 13 years or over, but I really think it should be like 30 years or over because I don't think I could do it. <laughs> Look, I think um, it's one of those things where if we ever get... If Lego, if you're listening to this, um, <laughs> please send us one and we can uh, put it to the, the test. Yeah, it's, it takes us back to, do you remember that Rolls-Royce engine they built out of yes. Lego? We're talking about that in one of our episodes. Yep. Yeah, epic exactly. stuff. Um, yeah, I think uh, a, a really important thing to, to lead in, into that example as well is that um, another key principle of brand partnerships as well is the idea of using a limited edition claim or mm. a limited edition benefit. So a specific movie might have come out at a specific point in time and therefore you're only going to sell a limited amount of uh, this product uh, to promote while this movie is um, is being shown. Um, but I think the idea of using a limited edition claim, um, and we're, we'll define that as uh, something that's going to be sold for only up to 12 months, mm. um, is a really cool lever for us to think about as marketers where you might be able to charge a price premium, you might be able to promote it a little bit differently, and you might be able to... Uh, uh, tap into the desire of wanting something that is scarce uh, in a really short amount of time. Mm-hmm. So uh, a really cool thing to think about in the context of brand partnerships. Yeah, totally. I, I think that, you know, if, if someone's going to get excited about your partnership, you can just turn it up a notch yeah. by, by having it only available for a short amount of time. I mean, I know that whenever they do a Happy Meal toy that's for a limited amount of time, I'm just, you know, I'm right there. I, I can't help myself. <laughs> I have to get that Happy Meal toy. I, I never knew this about you that you're a furious um, happy meal co- happy meal toy collector, but I get it. Yeah, it's like those um, it's like those um, Kinder Surprise um, toys as well, right? Yeah, like you, you want to get those. Yeah, no, de- no, definitely. Um, and I think yeah, tapping into that, it's a it's a it's a cool thing for um, it's a cool lever for us and a principle to think about as marketers, um, and as brand managers or product managers, um, and. Uh, it's a good thing to to pull um, or a good thing to activate within this part uh, within the partnership space. Totally, make sure you get sort of the bang for your buck when you're doing it in that yeah, period of time. Exactly, and you can do some really interesting things like plan your volume and um, your forecasting to, and even your pricing to leverage within that specific period of time because you have the luxury of knowing that. Um, you're only going to offer it until a specific point as well. Yeah, that's a great point around pricing as well is that you really need to think about are people actually willing to pay more for this this limited edition um, partnered product? Because mm. if they are, that's, you know, it's so hard to grow via price, especially in Australia and New Zealand. So I think it's a great way to, to leverage that. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's also, Baron Partnerships can also be a really cool way to test innovation if you're not um, uh, going to be using a lot of your core products. If you're using something that's maybe on the fringe of your portfolio offering, you can use it because especially if it's going to be a, a limited offer, you can use it to maybe test a new flavor or a new format or something a little mm. bit new and see how people react to it. It's only going to be out for a limited period of time and um, it, it, who knows, it might actually form some insights to which you can bring into your core portfolio later on as well. 
Yeah, I mean, we talked about, and I know this is going back to a bit of the traditional merger, but there was yeah. that motivation piece around yeah. people after they come together. Like if you have two brands that come together, there's a lot of excitement that's driven by that because you're working on something that you don't usually work on. Mm. So leverage that and try new things that maybe there's some technologies that your your brand partner has that you'd like to use in your, mm. in your sort of co-produced launch. Yeah, and just be really conscious that um, you get the opportunity to talk and engage with the completely potentially new consumer base and get some feedback which with that data you never know what ideas you might come up with next and really make sure you, you've set up the infrastructure to collect that feedback along mm. the way as well um another really cool uh principle and benefit that comes out of uh brand partnerships is um the idea of non-traditional advertising or media placement so oftentimes when you're uh, operating in new categories or new industries um you have the opportunity to leverage that other brands uh, own media channels as well um, so an example of this uh, often comes into play when service industries partner with physical goods uh, industries and through that they might uh, have their branding on uh, packaging um, and when they're seen on pack from a service industry perspective um, they might be in retail channels which they were never seen in before mm. um, and they get to catch a lot of um, uh, eyeballs um, and see their logo and their branding um, in these areas that they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, I think it, it's it's such a cool thing that you can do with with partnerships. Is you all of a sudden you have instant access to yeah potentially the channels that that your partner sells products in yeah. that you you could potentially get in with some branding or even get ranging of your product in in that new channel. Mm. Um, but also yeah, their owned assets. They they could have some really cool owned assets with engaged audiences that you were never able to tap into, and now it's on the table and I think what you can do is start to pull together not only a, a product or service partnership but also a way to bring it to market with a with a campaign together so mm. you could create assets together and then seed those assets through their own channels and your own channels and and through broader media as well no definitely I think it's definitely one to be um as proactive about at, at the at the beginning conversations of the partnership um mm. because yeah they might have some the uh working marketing you know you might also both have some marketing budget set aside to promote this uh the particular products launch um and yeah just being really smart about planning together and bringing those efficiencies together from the get-go yeah and i think you know it, if, if you have that strategic alignment of what both brands are trying to do mm. you can make sure that both brands get that in a way that isn't just like a i give you this and I take this. It can be, you know, if you put on your packaging this message that I want to get to consumers, mm. we can like get you over here into this new channel, and and it's it's very much like a cross pollination and and really a win win. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think uh, one of the last um, uh, principles as well to, to wrap up for brand partnerships is um, when we, we we touched on the motivation component before as well. Um, but when it comes to brand partnerships, we'll also be generating new ideas for the marketing teams themselves because you get to actually talk to other marketers. Yeah. <laughs> Which sometimes we forget that, you know, different brands and different businesses, you might um, not always get a chance to talk to people outside of your workplace, your office space about mm. marketing. Um, and you get to you get a chance to work on a project or um, uh, and meet new marketers and get these new ideas in a really practical way. Yeah, I think, you know, just talking to other people in the industry uh, closely as you work with yeah. them just opens your eyes. And sometimes if maybe you've worked for the same company for a while and and you're so used to your own processes and the way that you do things that just to hear and see how another business goes about, you know, the processes of setting up that partnership, you mm. might have to go through these channels and then you hear that they did it in a different way. Mm. Um, just, yeah, open opens up your mind a little bit and, um, and re 
makes you realize that there's there's cool other stuff that you can do and that other companies are doing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've got yeah. uh, one thing to add on to the yeah. end of brand partnerships. Isn't it something that I'm sort of defining to myself as I studied it as, I guess, the new partnership or mm. I guess maybe like a crossover between celebrity sponsorships and brand partnerships, which is mm. the use of vloggers and influencers as longer term partners rather than just paid one off um, media mm. um, uh, channels. So. I think if you can find specific influences that align really well to your brand, you can actually use them as a partner. So the example I've got, and I'm going to go back to the car industry because yeah. as you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a petrol head, um, is that you get we're starting to see a lot of uh, really big vloggers on YouTube. Uh, so an example I found is this guy called Mr. JWW. Mm. Um, and this guy, his pretty cool um, he spends his life driving awesome cars traveling around the world to car shows and doing these rallies that go across countries and all sorts of stuff i'm mm. secretly very jealous um or not so secretly <laughs> uh, and what what he did as um is he actually formed a long-term partnership with the car brand bentley mm. um and what they do is they actually give him the latest car that's come out um before everyone else and they say hey don't just review this for one day and give it back have it for a year uh, and and then tell people over that year with videos, tell your followers what it's like. Mm. You know, is it is it comfortable? Is it uncomfortable? Is it easy to get the shopping into and out of? You know, can you put a kid's seat in the back? That kind of thing. Um, all the things that Bentley owners want to know. And and it's a really cool way of taking it beyond a normal influencer post and having this guy become a real brand representative for Bentley. Um, and and I guess also a partner because he has a bit of a brand himself as a as a really big YouTuber. Um, and what you get out of that is actually some insights for potential car owners that they would never have got before. So if you're going to buy a car, it's a long-term investment. You want to know what it's going to be like mm. in a year's time. So this this is an actual way of bringing new content to market that's going to entice new Bentley buyers, perhaps. Yeah, definitely. And um, it's really cool that they get access to like um, uh, Mr. JWW's um brand and his uh audience as well in a really easy way yeah <laughs> it's super cool exactly and and because this person is so prolific as an mm. influencer they can actually research that and work out whether there is that alignment mm. or not whether it's the right brand or the right vlogger to come together yeah definitely mm. that's awesome um well we've gone through some awesome um principles uh of, of, of brand partnerships i think <clears throat> it's time for us to uh, look into some case studies as to how mm. um uh, some awesome companies uh, have activated this and activated these principles in a really awesome way. Um, Mark, do you want to kick yourself with a awesome case study from uh, GoPro and Rebel? Yeah, I, I thought this was cool because it, it sort of took it to the next level and it, this one's almost like a hybrid between a sort of a pure brand partnership but has very much become like a core, almost like semi-merger. Like the companies haven't merged but... It, it's it's very they work very closely together mm. so Red Bull and GoPro in 2016 announced um, that they were moving to a long-term partnership uh, and the reason they do this is because they identified that Red Bull being a production company now that that makes mm. all of these extreme sport videos um, they use GoPro cameras and they they notice that a lot of their fans who also make similar videos use GoPro cameras so mm. I guess you can already see that there's an adjacent category mm. where the behavior of the consumer is to consume Red Bull's media 
um, maybe even their drinks, I don't know, mm. um, but also use GoPro. So they said, great, we're, we're going to partner with GoPro uh, and we're going to create extreme sport content together. So Red Bull actually received equity in GoPro as part wow. of this partnership. So that's why I say it goes a little bit deeper. Wow. I think this is a great example of if you as a marketer come up with an idea to partner with GoPro, maybe in a local market or something, and then it actually gets picked up and it becomes a, a global thing. It beca- can become much bigger for the companies. Um, so GoPro became Red Bull's exclusive provider of point of view imaging technology, which I believe means cameras. Uh, and, and they really had a shared strategic vision. So Red Bull say that their vision is to inspire the world to live a bigger life. And mm-hmm. GoPro actually are completely aligned to that. It's all about travel, adventure and sport. Um, they had a shared audience, so they knew that their consumer was already working or buying or consuming both of these products. So they thought, how do we just maximize that shared audience? And also there will be obviously some new people who buy GoPro, but maybe don't consume Red Bull content and vice versa. Um, so it, it really, yeah, really made sense for them. To take it a step further, they really focused on great execution. So it's not literally just putting a GoPro logo on the helmet of any mm. you know, stunt driver that Red Bull employs. Um, it's about making sure that GoPro is recognized by Red Bull fans whenever they're consuming content. So making it a big part of the, of the content itself and getting lots of branding in there, both on the videos, but also around the videos where they are put. And then they share the content. So GoPro has full access to these videos that they can share themselves through their own media channels. And we, we spoke about that as a partnership. You know, Red Bull is actually getting access to new owned channels mm. um, and, and new opportunities, you know, p- perhaps even in stores to, to get mm. their brand across. Um, in terms of scale, it's huge. Um, Red Bull and GoPro amplify all of that content both ways. So mm. Red Bull take any GoPro content as well and do the same thing. And it goes to a massive, massive audience. <laughs> I'm just hoping that when they first started this meeting, uh, Red Bull came with a case of Red Bulls. And then uh, the more they talked about <laughs> this partnership, the more excited and caffeinated they both became. <laughs> and then it did blow up into this awesome... It just awesome, kept going. Yeah. Like, we could do this and this and this. <laughs> yeah, it, it went all night, that meeting. Um, yeah, look, so I think it's a really cool uh, example. Like They've done things like it, taking it further to an influencer partnership. Yeah. So um, by partnering with Red Bull... Um, and being part of all the content, GoPro has inadvertently partnered with the people who carry out those stunts. Mm. So there's a bit of an influencer partnership there. Um, and then there's also a cross-selling opportunity, which I think we mentioned more as part of a, uh, like a longer-term merger mm. strategy is that cross-sell. But you know they both have products which they can sell and advertise through each other's channels and, um, and even in stores. So I, I think that um, it's, it's a great example of, you know, there's heaps of, brand partnerships these days but this one i felt just went that step further really great execution and a bit deeper um as they came together as companies yeah no this is really amazing i think um it's definitely a gold class and like a really aspirational way to see how you can turn something short term into something quite longer term and Mm. kind of started from the marketing department as well which is really exciting yeah really cool (laughs) yeah very cool i think we need a a red bull after this (laughs) 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 if we we weren't already excited enough um (laughs) But yeah, uh, I think a uh, similar thing, I, I um, looked into an awesome case study uh, with Nike who collaborated with um, a really top streetwear brand called Off-White um, and they uh, collaborated to create this uh, collection called The Ten. 
Um, and just as a caveat, I think as a marketer, the street the streetwear industry is something that's so interesting to to study, and especially now within the world of sneakers, is um, something that was could have maybe seen as a uh, commodity in the past of you just needed to wear sneakers to exercise and have functional benefits. Uh, now becoming really uh, branded and high priced fashion items, and 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 have been transformed through the world of branding and marketing into these things that are almost very aspirational. So. Mm. Um, that's the thing I, I will caveat this with. If I get really excited and start, it's not because of the Red Bull. <laughs> jump, jumping up and down. It's not because of the Red Bull and the GoPro in my hand. I, I'm sensing that we're going to be doing an episode on sneakers very soon. <laughs> I, I, I think that there will definitely be a um, a streetwear uh, episode coming up soon. But for this collection between Off White and, and Nike, it started with in 2017, um, where the director of uh, the brand Off White, Virgil Abloh, who is a really revered. Um, uh, creative within within the world of fashion, um, he was challenged to reimagine and deconstruct ten of Nike's most influential uh, sneakers. So really, he was tasked with looking at their ten core silhouettes and offering, um, and seeing how he could, uh, with the brand, deconstruct them and reevaluate them and launch them into the public in, for a limited run, which was really really cool. Um, it also included. Um, uh, Staying true to Nike's core, it included um, also Nike's owned uh, Jordan and Converse brands as well. So they just took the best of the best they had and challenged Off-White and said, hey guys, we want to collaborate with you guys and how can we make this even better? So it was a huge success within within the sneaker uh, collection within, the, within this limited run. And to give a bit of context, they, the sneakers, um, the most successful Air Force One uh, Jordan sneaker uh, sold for... Um, uh, around 190 US dollars mm. when when it was first launched uh, but now it's actually up uh, selling and reselling for upwards of $4,000 online I didn't realise when you bought those online you paid four grand <laughs> They do yeah. look good though. Yeah, I know it's, it's. I haven't eaten in days, <laughs> but, but my, my my feet um have been have been looking amazing. Um, so uh, when uh, Virgil Abloh was interviewed uh, as to why he wanted to do this, he was really um uh conscious of the e-commerce world of sneaker culture, and he said that he wanted to make something that stops you from mindlessly scrolling, which I thought was really cool. So this mm. collection was designed to wear and post about on on social media, um, and through this. Through this partnership, uh, Nike and this collection, Nike was able to leverage just Virgil Abloh's own channels just from him himself. So through his uh, uh, network, before the launch, Virgil um, actually custom hand wrote and made and designed um, specific versions of the Chicago Air Jordan 1 version of the sneaker and sent them to just his celebrity friends. So for example, he sent a pair before launch to his friend rapper ASAP Rocky and wrote Air Flaco on the midsole of the shoe in texture, which is part of the key motif. Um, And by doing that uh, and leveraging that network of friends, (laughs) um, the sneakers really took off online before they had even launched mm. in store um and that was something really cool that nike was able to tap into just from the power of one uh one individual um so a really cool way to yeah. see how um virgil was able and through off-flight they were able to have an awesome creative challenge and a huge canvas to play with within this core collection of sneakers but nike was also able to really reinvent themselves and reinvent and breathe light into all their core sneakers as well yeah i think you know what you said up top around you sort of focus on something that's new and auxiliary to your core business so they didn't they didn't change their current shoes and only make the new versions available they made a whole new range with virgil but then it elevates that core so they 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 become even cooler because they were the the foundation for these 
great iterations. Exactly. And within the world of sneakers, it should probably come on our <laughs> sneaker <Yeah>. podcast episode <laughs> to come. Um, it's so cool because um, there's actually a stock market for sneakers now called uh, StockX where people are reselling uh, these sneakers. And when you look at um, uh, streetwear uh, brands, you can see the valuation of the intellectual property as to like how much they're being resold for. Mm. And oftentimes the top sneakers on um, this website are still uh, part of this original collection, which shows just how powerful this collaboration was, yeah. um, which then will have an awesome trickle down effect on the rest of the core portfolio. Yeah. Or even just Nike as a brand, right? Yeah. Like the value of yeah their core, their core shoes and anything they do suddenly is elevated by the fact that people are willing to pay so much money for something that they sold previously. Exactly it. Yeah, but um, I guess that wraps up some awesome learnings and um, from uh, from brand partnerships yeah. and emerging acquisitions, and most importantly, just synergies and how we can come together as brands and as people to make really cool work. Yeah, I think it's it's great not to be siloed in your thinking and and make sure you open your eyes, see what else is out there, see what your consumers are doing, because at the core of it, if you understand your consumer that's when you'll be able to find a really great partnership that makes sense for them as well. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Awesome, Mark. Well, as Mark, as we know, we have to stay uh, curious in the world and, and always be learning so we can help serve our consumers a lot better. Um, what have you found interesting this week? Yeah, actually, uh, I just finished up a book. Oh, nice. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> it's about a book. Uh, no, but this one I actually found, yeah, really, really mm. uh, interesting and learned a lot from. So a uh, really famous book called Man's Search for Meaning by a guy called Viktor Frankl. Yeah. Um, so for anyone who hasn't come across it before, uh, definitely read it. It's, it's a really easy book and short book to read. But Viktor Frankl was a psychologist who uh, survived through the Holocaust. Mm. So he obviously had some really tough times in his life. And he had already been uh, writing his, I guess, perspective on psychology, um, which is called uh, Logotherapy. Mm. Um, which is all about sort of using future to, if I understand it correctly, using focus on the future to, to gain motivation in the now and to move forward if you maybe stopped for some reason or depressed or, or, or something like that. Um, and, and by going through this terrible process, it really put it to the test because he was able to see people at, I guess, the worst point in their lives and what they did about it and how they dealt with it. Um, and, and he started to really see the people who maybe didn't think that life was worth living, um, as well as people who were able to actually pull themselves through. Um, mm. And then if they were lucky and survived, keep going on to, to live their lives uh, in, a, in a, I guess, a way that was positive for them oh, wow. into the future, which would have been so hard at that time. So I think it just gave me a really great perspective on, you know, the importance of having a bit of a purpose in your life. Mm. Um, and, you know, purpose doesn't have to be some deep down, you know, I want to save the world type mm. thing. Um, the purpose in your life could just be to achieve something now mm. and then move on to another purpose later. But having something to work towards is really important to get you through tough times. Mm. Um, and also he talks about the idea that um, if you've got a problem in your life, the best way to fix it sometimes, not all the time, is to not actually focus on it so much and try and deal with that problem, but to focus on something else. Uh, so to sort of illustrate this, he says, if you're trying to fall asleep, the best way to do it is to try and stay awake. Because if you try too hard to fall asleep, you won't fall asleep, right? Mm. Um, so I think just taking a bit of that thinking into some of the like things that might come up in my life, you know, any any issues that might arise that might frustrate me in the future is to remember that sometimes to get through it, you need to focus on something else. And hopefully that will diminish the frustration you're feeling right now. 
So yeah, really, uh, really cool book. Would definitely recommend it. Uh, and then on top of that, I just started the other day. Um, I was at the bookstore and I saw War and Peace by Tolstoy. Ooh. And I just thought, I just, I've got to read it at some point. <laughs> you know, like it's just such an epic book. And yeah. for better or for worse, you know, it's sort of, you get all sorts of reviews about it. I thought if, if I never read it, I would just be annoyed. Yeah, It's just such a monumental sort of novel. So I've just picked it up and started reading that. So I'll, I'll let you know how I go. I'll probably be going on it for a while. It's pretty thick. <laughs> I, will, I guess we'll, we'll, we look forward to hearing about your foray into the world of Russian literature in a few episodes to come. Yeah, we'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, we'll do weekly updates. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, maybe, maybe we can break it up into yeah, little sections and we'll yeah. work away. Yeah, hmm. that's awesome. No, that's really cool stuff. And yeah, I highly recommend um, reading both of those books, really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess they're, they're classics for a reason. Yeah, so so what about you? Any Anything interesting books? What's going on? Yeah, look, so um, I don't know if you can uh, tell by my voice through this episode, but I um, have recently uh, had all four of my wisdom teeth uh, removed. Wow, all yeah. at once. Yeah, all at once. Just went, uh, went, went, went for the... Had, it, got to that time in my life I feel a lot wiser now that I've, I've taken them out it was a smart decision they were very painful but um uh yeah it's, it's been it's it's been an interesting um week week of recovery but through that and um through uh being in bed I kind of got to thinking about just the purpose of wisdom teeth in the first place and need to do some research and I found that that gave me a lot of clarity um to look forward to so Interestingly enough, um, anthropologists believe that wisdom teeth were especially helpful for our prehistoric ancestors mm. who they needed serious chewing power to grind through all the rough plants, seeds, nuts and foliage um, that made up the bulk of their diets back then, um, which I thought was really interesting. So because their diets were like quite coarse at that time, um, as teeth wore down or they fell out, um, wisdom teeth could actually step in and it kind of acted like the reserve players of a football mm. team. And they actually served as that like permanent replacement that, well, if you lost a few teeth through eating this really coarse diet, you actually still had a few that were protected all the way at the back, mm. um, which was really, really interesting. Um, but now that we have a much softer diet um, that's filled with uh, carbohydrates and other foods, um, uh, as well as just having pretty good dental care, we don't really require our wisdom teeth. They don't really serve as much mm. of a purpose. And on top of that, our brains have actually increased in size, or at least for some of us. <laughs> they have. I, 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 can't really, yeah. I can't really speak for myself. I'm still <laughs> definitely developing. Um, but be- because of that, our jaws have gotten a lot uh, smaller to accommodate mm. that space, um, uh, that increased brain capacity, um, which has mean that oftentimes people have to get them removed because they don't just don't have space for them in, the, in their jaws anymore and they don't really serve a function. So... Um, interestingly enough, uh, scientists now classify wisdom teeth as vestigial organs. So that uh, would be a body part that has actually become uh, functionless through evolution, wow. which is, yeah, really, really interesting. So um, uh, I, I got to thinking about as I, as I got them removed, and I was really fortunate that we have you know awesome healthcare system in Australia and, and really lucky I was able to get them removed quite safely. Um, I was thinking about like, how have they have removed wisdom teeth, you know, even just like a hundred years ago? Um, and so many, uh, many, many years ago, uh, barbers actually acted as, as surgeons um, before they had uh, the opportunity to indulge in uh, modern medicine. So uh, they would pull teeth, they would uh, uh, do bloodletting or um, uh, even small surgeries because they were skilled with different razors and, and different techniques. So, yeah. So um, they, they were kind of, uh, in a similar way, I found a, a really cool part on the internet said that uh, in a similar way that... Uh, uh, gunslingers, gunslingers became enforcers in the old west uh they were uh, barbers kind of became unofficial surgeons as well at certain points in time mostly 
um, until the early 1800s when they had wow. needed to perform these types of procedures. So Talk about finding like an adjacent category yeah. of service that you could also offer because you have a skill that works across both. Exactly. To bring it, it back to um, partnerships or... Yeah, yeah no, it definitely is. There was a, a bit of a crazy synergy, but it definitely, reading that, made me uh, feel very, very fortunate that... Um, <laughs> it wasn't your barber. Uh, yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> my, my barber does give a tight fade, but I would not necessarily... <laughs> um, uh, I trust him with uh, taking all for my wisdom teeth out, but yeah, very interesting to think about medical history and uh, the where wisdom teeth removal really kicked off was a really hot hot point was yeah. uh, in the early 1900s when Novocaine was invented as uh, a local anaesthetic. Yeah. So that obviously rocked the medical world and and, <laughs> and yeah, I'm and, sure that was a catalyst <laughs> for a lot of surgery. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It. But I'm really fortunate that we have even access to technology like that in this modern age. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're, you know, you've had a, a great experience of having your wisdom teeth removed and you've learned something from it. I'm yeah. Already wiser. Th- thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as always, guys, uh, please leave us a uh, review um, within the, the comment section of your uh, favorite podcast app um, and let us know how we can help continue learning. Yeah, exactly. Hit subscribe. Uh, we'd love for you to listen to us and write a comment about what you think about the podcast because that's the only way it gets better is if we, if we hear from you guys what you want. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you.